Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's great to be back on the air, and tonight is the start of a new season of History 101. For those of you who weren't on last night, I did a brief uh, podcast um, greeting session for uh, my new upcoming uh, book that we are going to be talking about. It's going to be uh, the book uh, titled Through the Perilous Fight. From the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, The Six Weeks That Saved the Nation, written by Steve Vogel. I read this book um, back uh, starting around March and then uh, finished it by the beginning of May. Nonetheless, it was a wonderful read, and it's a must-read. I say this in part because it's really a forgotten chapter in American history. But then again, I think it's safe to say that that while we as a country have learned a great deal about our past, there are still um, important topics that have been discussed but have not received enough attention. So, um, what uh, what does this uh, book talk about, given that it's through the perilous fight? Well, for starters, all of us should know, all of us Americans, that is, should know, When we hear the line through the perilous fight, that has to do with our country's national anthem. What what does perilous mean? Well, for one, it can mean uncertain. Uh, The outcome is one that's um, undecided. It's one that either could make or break for whatever lies ahead. Well, at the start of the 19th century... What war is the United States involved in? Well, I can tell you this much. It's not a war that's overseas, although we are fighting um, a country overseas that's from overseas. The war that we are involved in at the, in the second decade of the 19th century is none other than the War of 1812. Well, does the War of 1812 last until the end of 1812? No. It actually goes through midway of 1815. But what's interesting about the War of 1812, there are many interesting things. I'll tell you one right here, is that this war has been given other titles or names. What are those answers? Well, it's often been referred to as America's Second War for Independence and the Forgotten War. Well, who was the United States at war with? Great Britain, or should I say England. And not only were we at war with England, but England was also um, joining the fight with Indian nations along the frontier, being in the Northwest Territory. Well, what is that Northwest Territory um, referred to as? It's not the Pacific Coast that we know today, but the Northwest Territory that we know of is through Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin, five states that would be carved out of that uh, Northwest Ordinance from 1787, which basically said that anybody moving into those territories to settle on that new frontier would be entitled to have freedom of religion, 
Of course, that was that could have been anywhere, but those five states were prohibited from having um, slavery. How ironic, though, at the time that the war breaks out between the United States and England in 1812, that only one of these five states is currently in the Union or was already admitted to the Union. Does anybody want to know what state that is? Ohio. Well, what government, or should I say, what governmental body has the power to declare war? I think we all should know this one. If, if not, then we really need to go back and, um, and uh, reread our um, 101 material. That answer is Congress. So for those of you out there who didn't know beforehand, uh, the President of the United States does not have the power to declare war. However, um, we should find out why, there, why this war happened. So therefore, in order to know why it happened, what were some of the causes behind the War of 1812? There were multiple causes, or reasons, I should say, but I uh, found three that were rather um, essential. Number one, there were a series of trade restrictions that had been imposed by England to cut off U.S. trade with France. Here's, here's something um, to take into consideration. As we all know, France uh, was an ally to the United, or should I say, to the, to the new United States Republic during the American Revolution. Remember, the French and the English, or should I say the British, have not always had the best relationship. And one of the reasons why France joined the United States in the American Revolution was because in the aftermath of the French and Indian War, the British took control of all the French territory prior to, in the aftermath of war's end. So the French felt that they had a score to settle with England as a result of her, uh, of her prized possessions. Number two, there were British acts of impressment. Does anybody know what impressment means? We're not talking about impressing the other side in terms of having something better that's having something better than what you, uh, the opposition, would have. Impressment means that you are forcing someone from the opposition against his or her, his or her own will to do something that they do not want to do, but yet are not allowed to um, speak up for themselves to say, hey, I, I don't want to have any part in this. So let me give you some better examples. Leading up to the War of 1812, the British were desperate for men to join the ranks of the Royal Navy. The problem, however, is that many men desert the British Navy. And, and for those of you who should be reminded, it's the same example as it was during the American Revolution. The vast majority of the British troops in the American Revolution were from lower class ranks of society. The same could be said for the British Royal Navy. Very few men would have been able to have afforded to have paid for their own commissions. So this results in desertions and other means of, um, what do you call it, instability within the ranks of the Navy. So here is this, the young United States going out into the waters 
of the Atlantic Ocean to trade not only with France, but perhaps with other countries. What, is, what do the British decide to do? Well, they decide to harass our ships. And we're not just talking about, you know, launching a cannonball or two to cause damage to the ship, but we are talking about um, blockading our ships at sea uh, to the point where the opposition, being the British, comes aboard the ships and basically starts raiding our um, unit and capturing men against their own will. Think about it. There's no way to negotiate a hostage exchange. Basically, once you're captured, your family might not even see you again for the rest of your life. Of course, Britain's excuse was a sailor shortage. So basically, our men were being forced to fight against, to fight for the British, alongside the British, that is, against their own will. And number three, there was British, strong British support amongst the American Indians along the frontier who were willing to take up arms and hostilities to join the British to prevent expansion of the American frontier in the Northwest Territory. And what is that again? Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. Now, here's something that should be pointed out. Um, who is living in Canada, our neighbor to the north? I could tell you this right now. Loyalists, those who had um, fled the United States uh, to seek asylum or refuge, in fear of not wanting to be persecuted by the new uh, found, founding republic. It was one thing to be loyal to the crown, but in order to ensure safety, you needed to leave the United States and go into exile. So Canada is a perfect spot for many of these loyalists, not only who were loyal during the time of the American Revolution, but in the years after, especially even right now. And it's safe to say that even in the early 19th century that perhaps the cost of living in Canada was probably cheaper than it was in the young republic of the United States. So for those loyalists living in Canada, I think it's safe to say that they will do anything there is to entice Indian uprisings along the frontier, because think about it, parts of Michigan especially along the lakes, being Lake Superior and Lake Huron. Parts of those lakes border Canada. And, of course, you have to remember in the early 19th century in Michigan, for example, there is the Upper Peninsula has not been created just yet. Basically, it's all wilderness, but parts of the Upper Peninsula surround um, borders into Canada. Many historians know that the Due to a high demand for land, many British politicians and a select handful of uh, anti-congressional advocates, or should I say anti-war congressional opponents, all viewed the demand for land as a primary motive behind declaring war against England. And it's very possible that that could have been the case, because the, the greater the demand there is for land, the greater the incentive is to want to remove those who would be taking up arms 
with England, none other than none other than the Indians. Well, um, what political group helped shape the decision to declare war on England? You, it is a political party of its time, but they were given a nickname. The answer for the, as for the political party was the Jeffersonian Republicans, or what were known as the Democratic Republican Party or the Anti-Federalists, but their nickname was the Warhawks. They were representatives from the South and from the West, and when I say West, I'm not talking about California and Oregon. We got a ways to go still before we... Um, Give, before those states actually become states admitted into the Union. When I talk about the West, I'm referring to Kentucky and Tennessee. And who was a leader out of Kentucky? None other than Mr. Henry Clay, who just so happened to be a prominent Virginian at one time. As a matter of fact, he was a well-to-do lawyer, and he was um, mentored by Mr. George Wythe, or shall I say the late George Wythe at this time, because sadly he passed away tragically six years prior to this war in 1806. And when I say the South, I am referring to Georgia and the Carolinas. And who's a prominent uh, Warhawk advocate in the South? Mr. John C. Calhoun of South Carolina. Is, was declaring war on England an easy thing to do, particularly for this war? The answer is no, because declaring war on England was split primarily within party and geographical lines. And in the early 19th century, the United States is not anywhere near being a world superpower. You know, we've all been told or led to believe that after the American Revolution was over that we just became a superpower overnight. Well, i got to break the ice on this one. Not to get ahead of the game, but I might as well just tell you now. In 1812, the United States might as well be a second or third world uh, country because it doesn't have the same status rank in the world as, say, England. It's really not... It's really not until the very end of the 19th century before the United States ever becomes a true superpower. Well, people are probably wondering right now if they haven't, that for those of you who haven't really uh, studied a whole lot about the War of 1812, the first question that will probably come to your mind is this. Why all of a sudden, after 30 years, is Britain wanting to... Um, be involved in another war with America? Well, before, before you can answer that question, here's something we better pay careful attention to first. When America, or should I say, when the Continental Army defeated the British and it resulted in their surrender at Yorktown in 1781, and then two years later with the Treaty of Paris in 1783, we did win our freedom from England. And at the same time, it may have been safe to say that we did win independence. However, freedom and independence don't always mean the same thing. It's safe to say by 1812, we, we already have established the right to free speech 
the right to assemble and petition. We've already gotten our freedom in terms of having the right to a fair and speedy trial. We've already earned the right to keep and bear arms. We've already earned the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishments. We've also um, gotten the right to be free from uh, double jeopardy, that is, to the right to be free from being tried twice for the same crime. We've also earned the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. All of these freedoms, people, are freedoms that come under those infamous Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to our Constitution. So yes, it's great that we have all these personal freedoms, but what are we lacking? We still don't have independence. How so? Well, it's one thing to go on the high seas to um, explore what's out there. Not just explore, but to engage in everyday commerce activity. The problem, though, is that the English, or should I say the British, are still treating the American people as an inferior group of people or as an inferior country, especially on the high seas, where respect itself has no, has no existence. It's totally irrelevant. So, yes, you can have all the personal freedoms you want, but if, you're not, if you don't have any form of independence on the high seas or elsewhere in the world, then independence truly just doesn't exist. So, um, who was president of the United States in the war in 1812? That answer is Mr. James Madison, who happens to be the founding father of our Bill of Rights. And we do have James Madison to thank for that, because if it weren't for him, there probably would have been, at that time, in the, at the start of the 1790s, that you might not have had a Bill of Rights. Sure, somebody else might have come along and established it, but given that James Madison is a Virginian, and not because, so much because he's a Virginian, but he knew from the get-go that in order for our U.S. Constitution to f survive and to be relevant, people's liberties must be safeguarded. They must be safeguarded against a government that, if, if not careful, could take away essential freedoms and liberties from people. What are those liberties? Well, I just mentioned it a second ago. The right to a fair and speedy trial. The right to free speech, assemble, petition. The right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. Now, was James Madison a part of the previous president's administration? Yes, he was. James Madison uh, was a secretary of state to Thomas Jefferson James Madison shared many of the same beliefs as uh, Mr. Jefferson did. But here's something else important, too. Did England agree to go to war with America in 1812? No. But England still did everything in her power to make America's presence on the high seas meaningless, especially through multiple acts of impressment, as mentioned earlier. And... We forget this too, but it is an important reminder. England still had territory in the far Pacific Northwest of the United States. 
most notably in Oregon. So, just when we thought we had gotten rid of England altogether, her presence is still, ava- is still there in uh, the United States, even at the start of the 19th century. Now, before James Madison becomes president, I should say two years before he becomes president in 1809, uh, Thomas Jefferson, towards the end of his presidency, and James Madison himself had an important part in this matter, because it shaped public policy for what they thought were the right reasons, but in the end, it wasn't. And how true that can be said even in today's time for, for any kind of public policy decision. But in 1807, there was an incident known as the Chesapeake Leopard Affair. It was a uh, ship of the United States's rather. The British decide that it's okay to search for deserters on our ship. And by doing so, they basically come onto our ship without any probable cause. So in other words, it's, it's almost as if a government official or a group of gover- government officials on our end came into John Smith's home, started searching his place for evidence but yet they had no proper cause, proper, what you call, they had no um, probable cause. They had no validity. In other words, they didn't have a, a proper search warrant to say, hey, we've got reasons to believe that you're harboring this person or that you are possessing something that's illegal and that can pose a threat to the community. Well, this is what the British did all the time. This is their way of exerting their high authority on the seas. So what do you know? They searched the ship for deserters, they attacked the warship, and obviously people on our side were um, impressed. That is, they were forced against their own will to fight for the British. The incident happened in Norfolk, Virginia. So it obviously enrages Thomas Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists. Jefferson feels that the best way to go about Getting back at England is to have Congress, and remember his party, the Anti-Federalists or the Jeffersonian Republicans, are in power, uh, and that makes the Federalists in the minority. Thomas Jefferson decides that it would be best to impose to best impose an embargo. Do any of you out there know what an embargo is? A trade restriction. An embargo pretty much can put a, a halt or a limit on how much trade between two countries can take place or even if any trade itself can happen. Well, in 1807, in the aftermath of the Chesapeake Leopard Affair incident, Congress p- passes the Embargo Act on England. Basically, it cuts off all trade with England. Do you think, who do you think this is going to hurt more, though? Is it going to hurt England or is it going to hurt the United States? Sadly, the answer is the United States. It does far more damage to the American economy than it does to Britain's economy. How so? Well, England can trade with just about anybody in the world. In other words, you might as well say that England has squatters' rights. 
In other words, they have first privileges with anything when it comes to trading with anybody in the world, including us. But are they hurting? No, because they've got so many more markets to go to. The United States is still trying to find its way in the world with whom they are feel comfortable trading with, but also whether or not they're going to continue to run the risk of losing their own men to the enemy being England in terms of impressment. So I can tell you right now that the people who really hurt, who were really hurt the most by this embargo in the United States were up in the New England states. Think about it. Mercantile economy, uh, people up there are importing stuff that England can benefit from, textiles, wool, linen, cloth, um, those kinds of goods in particular. So as a result of the embargo, all of these men are out of a job. And we're not just talking 50 or 100 men per town. We're talking thousands of men. Their livelihoods are now lost because of this embargo. It's not like they can just they they could just go to the nearest job fair market the next day and say, hey, what's available out there? They don't have that kind of luxury. Now, one thing, though, that Thomas Jefferson, I can give him credit for trying. Jefferson, as we all know, loved to experiment with things. And he truly did believe that, okay, if we impose an embargo on England, we can start learning how to make goods at home and be less dependent on England and other foreign countries for those goods. The other problem to that situation is that not everybody has access to machines. And we're not just talking a uh, an everyday machine. You know, not everybody has access to a spinning jenny, which uh, can be used to uh, for textile purposes, for weaving and making uh, yarn. So it's one thing to say, I, I want to be less dependent on England, but if you pass an embargo, you can't expect everybody to stop and drop what they're doing and start making things on, them, on their own, uh, not just for short-term purposes, but for long-term as well. So basically, for Jefferson, whatever looked great on paper ended up losing its luster in the aftermath of people left and right up in the New England states losing their jobs. So uh, another factor to take into consideration is that between 1803 and 1812, I, I was blown away at this, but maybe it shouldn't come as a surprise because impressment by the British was not something that just happened every so often, in a, in a blue moon, that is. 7,000 American Navy men slash sailors had been taken captive by the British Royal Navy. 7,000. That doesn't seem like a big number, but when you consider... Um, take, for example, during the time that the Declaration of Independence was signed, only about two and a half million people were living in colonial America. It may be best to say that by the time during the stretch of 1803 to 1812, you may have had maybe close to five or six million people living in uh, colonial, or should I say in the United States, which, which is a lot. But when you have 7,000 men being taken captive by the British Royal Navy, that's a high number.
And it's not like you can replace those people overnight, too. Well, what year of this war, or should I say of the War of 1812, does author Steve Vogel focus greatly on? The year is 1814 that he focuses a lot of his energy on within the book. What's important about the year 1814? Well, that's the year that our nation's uh, national anthem, or should I say that star-spangled banner, was established, or not so much established, but was written. And I will talk at a much, much later um, podcast session about how our national anthem got written, because that has a, because that's a story to tell onto itself. 1814, I, I'll tell you this right now, and I'll mention it again in another podcast, but I will just tell you this for some brief information. 1814 was not a good year in the United States. Of course, I I will admit that that was probably not the first time in our country's history where a particular year was just not a good year whatsoever. But I can tell you this much, that Washington, D.C. was burned in 1814. And then there was a battle in the aftermath of the burning of D.C. up in Baltimore, just to the north, that which in the end would save our nation's existence, but in the end would allow us to achieve true independence. And more will be discussed about that in future podcast sessions on this um, subject. There were many uh, prominent figures or prominent people who played roles in this war that were valuable. And then there were those who we would like to believe did play an important role. And while, yes, they did, however, they were not remembered for all the right reasons. Well, who are some people that were remembered for the right reasons that will be discussed uh, down the road? To name a few, uh, Francis Scott Key, John Randolph, James Monroe, Roger uh, Taney, Joshua Barney. Who were a few people that did not leave behind a good legacy in the aftermath of this war? Um, One person I can say uh, who didn't, although his legacy wasn't completely tarnished, but it did take a huge beating as a result of how he um, handled affairs, not just with the start of the war, but as a result of the nation's capital being burned. The answer is Mr. James Madison, but I will talk more about all of, about his handling of the war and in, in another podcast episode. But it's good to get these names out now because we're not just going to be focused on learning about why this war happened, but people in general and how certain people were in the right place at the right time to make history for the all for the right reasons, not only to have saved our country during this time, but 
but because of their actions, our country was able to survive one of its most um, horrific um, moments in its early days of being a young republic. Well, is it safe to say that America is united as one prior to outbreak of this war? The answer is no. President Madison did not establish any proper criteria guidelines for why war itself was necessary, but he firmly believed that England's current treatment towards the United States on the high seas was enough proof for war. So in other words, he, President Madison was truly convinced that England's continuous actions of impressment towards our sailors was enough to justify war. You know, we all are entitled to our opinions, but after having read this book, I thought to myself, just because our, we are being impressed against our own will, are we the only country that's experienced that? Probably not. It's probably safe to say that England was probably doing it to other countries during this time. And did those countries declare war on England right away? No. Could they have? Perhaps. But just because you declare war on another country, it doesn't automatically guarantee that you're going to be prepared in terms of uh, having all the right defensive strategies lined up to not only protect your military, but but the security and well-being of your of the people, that is the everyday people. Who are some noteworthy individuals of opposition to this war starting out? And it was that way for a good while. Francis Scott Key of Maryland and Mr. John Randolph of Virginia. The, these two men weren't the only Two, but in terms of noteworthy people, I figured it would be good to go ahead and uh, give some brief 101 information on these men. John Randolph is a Virginian. Well, I think it's very safe to say that if you are a Randolph, yes, you could live somewhere else, but when I tend to think of the Randolph family, I think of Virginia. I think of how much land the family owned. After all, Thomas Jefferson's related to the Randolphs. His mother was a Randolph. And of course, the Randolphs were strong supporters of the Anglican Church or the Church of England for a number of years up until uh, the American Revolution. But even in the aftermath of the American Revolution, the Randolphs still hold um, a prominent position in Virginia society. Mr. Randolph believe it or not, was from Roanoke. And he was in Congress up until the time that Congress itself declared war against England. He opposed going to war with England for very good reasons. The size of the U.S. military was not strong. It was very small. Congress lacked adequate funding. There wasn't a sufficient navy Congress wasn't even unified in any way. Mr. Randolph even questioned the, questioned the safety and security of our eastern seaboards, knowing none of them were properly protected. Eastern seaboard cities? Norfolk. 
That is Norfolk, Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York City, Boston, Massachusetts. We could go down as far south as, uh, say, Wilmington, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, to Savannah, Georgia. If Mr. Randolph is opposed to the war, he is an anti-war hawk. However, despite losing his um, re-election bid, I have to give him credit for doing what he did. The new congressional delegation that came in, those new members who wanted war with England, given that they were known as the War Hawks, Mr. Randolph warned just about every one of them of their naive superstitions and what were their naive superstitions? Well, the Warhawks were convinced that they, that they could conquer Canada in a heartbeat. After, because for one, England controlled Canada. And two, they were convinced that Canada posed a threat to the United States. And they truly felt that a militia alone could um, take out the Canadians. Well, Mr. Randolph warns the Warhawks about their naive superstitions about conquering Canada while leaving Washington, D.C. defenseless. And just so that you all know, when the war breaks out, where are we focusing all of our energy on? The Great Lakes and in Canada. Around what we know now as present-day Detroit, Michigan, New York, along uh, present-day um, Niagara Falls, Buffalo, Lake Ontario, Lake Erie. We are basically going into what's called no-man's land. We've been into Canada before. The problem, though, is that here we are sending an unlimited number of men up north, but yet we are shooting ourselves in the foot and that will be discussed in a further podcast session on why we have decided not to invest any kind of protection, not just along the seaboard or the, um, the coast, but, toward, but for our capital. Our next person is Francis Scott Key, who's going to be mentioned a great, great deal in this um, new season or should I say, through this book, Through the Perilous Fight. Francis Scott Key is a Marylander. And I decided to mention part one about Francis Scott Key, because there are going to be multiple things about him we're going to uh, discuss. He is from Maryland. He didn't serve in Congress, but he was a well-known, prominent lawyer in Georgetown. And for those of you who know about Georgetown, that's just on the outskirts of D.C., like his counterpart, uh, Mr. Randolph, Francis Scott Key is vehemently opposed to the U.S. declaring war on England, but he is also opposed to the U.S. attacking Canada because Canada is an innocent party. Canada isn't um, impressing our sailors. Canada isn't um, enticing Indians to join them in the fight. That's the, the British. Francis Scott Key sees a lot of partisanship in Washington. 
And think about it, even in the early 19th century, there is partisanship, just like there is today. But I, I will admit, though, that the partisanship we see in Congress today in the 21st century is probably 100 times worse than what it was in the start of the 19th century. Why is, what concerns does Francis Scott Key have about the partisanship? Well, he sees that there are so many bitter divisions in America, not just over this war, but the attitudes between the Republicans and the Federalists. How does Francis Scott Key relieve himself of all the uncertainty, during the, especially during the start of this war? He turns to a primary outlet known as literary. He reads poems, but he also starts writing his own poetry works. This could be leading on to something down the road. I'm not going to give it away, but just think about it. Something down the road will help make Francis Scott Key an even more reputable person. Well, folks, we have covered a lot of uh, introductory, or should I say 101 introduction information tonight. And we have a lot more to look forward to that lies ahead. But remember, just because we won the American Revolution 30-some years earlier against England, we have to remember, even in the aftermath of that war, towards the end of the 18th century and into the beginning of the 19th century, we're still at odds with England. We still have a ways to go before we truly can establish a good relationship with England. Not just us, but for, but for both countries. And here's a little bonus question. Who's still the King of England in 1812? Oh, that's an easy answer. King George III. <laughs> just when we thought maybe he had passed away, I hate to tell you people, he's still alive. He's still going strong. As a matter of fact... King George III, if I'm not mistaken, he lives to be in his early 80s. By 1812, he's in his uh, early 70s. So we still have to contend with a tyrant who um, not only imposed uh, taxes on us without our consent, we're still de dealing with a tyrant who is plundering our coasts, ravaging our seas, making life very uncomfortable as what Thomas Jefferson said in one of his many facts in the Declaration of Independence. Well, that is all for tonight. I look forward to another upcoming podcast session here soon on the book Through the Perilous Fight. Remember, folks, perilous meaning uncertain. But with uncertainty comes hope. And hope itself can come in the form of one person bringing it to us or a group of people who rise from the ashes to do good that not only helps us in that moment of uncertainty but helps secure our future for better days to come. Take care and good night.